This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 55, October 10, 1983. Well, first of all, I want to thank those of you who let us know how much you enjoyed our last Easy Chair, the one I did with John Saunders and Otto Scott on the Constitution. Let me add something about the question of constitutional interpretation. The root of the evil is in the churches. After all, why should not the courts interpret the Constitution loosely when theologians interpret the Bible even more loosely? As a matter of fact, this is the origin of all kinds of legal evil. Because the Bible is, we must remember, the word of God, which means, therefore, it is binding, it is law. Therefore, whenever in history, beginning back in the Old Testament era, when a very loose interpretation of Scripture, which turned the letter of the law upside down, when that began, it destroyed the whole of society both the religious and the civil aspects. The same thing has happened again and again in the church. And of course, as men in the church began to go into antinomianism, as they began to interpret away one thing after another in the Bible, the net result was that men in law picked up the same practice. If the word of God doesn't mean what it plainly says. Why should the word of man mean what it plainly says? Today you have theologians who are ready to take the passages in the Bible which condemn homosexuality and call for the death penalty on homosexuals and turn them upside down to say that the Bible approves of homosexuality. Now, when you have men who are teaching in seminaries who are ready to do that kind of thing, why be surprised at what the Supreme Court does? After all, the pace setter always has been religion. It sets the temper of the age. Well, while we're on that, I want to read something that uh, tickled me. It was a little article in a current periodical about uh, Daddy Hall, an Episcopal priest who years ago uh, worked in a slum area, I believe in New York City, and he trained young men to go out and reach the down and outers so that uh, he was quite an effective man in the inner city in his day. Now, the author of this article, Joseph Bailey, has this passage about him. and He says it in humor, but I think it reads otherwise if we take it as we should. This Episcopal priest believed with all his heart as he believed everything that the Old Testament Levitical laws should be followed in the Christian's diet. Therefore he ate no pork, nor did his seminarians. On one occasion, at a big Christian banquet in Manhattan, he was asked to say grace. Glancing down at his plate, Daddy Hall saw that the meat was ham. 
His prayer was brief and disconcerting. O Lord, if thou canst bless under grace what thou didst curse under the law, then bless this food and keep us from dying. Amen. Well, <laughs> that's praying plainly and honestly. Now to turn to an item in the Wednesday, September 28, 1983, Los Angeles Herald Examiner. It's about a problem Eastern Airlines is having. Let me add, the man who writes this article is plainly not in favor of Eastern Airlines' position. The case involves an airline captain who had a sex change operation. Then when he reapplied to go back and fly, Eastern refused to allow him. And they said that the issue isn't sex but safety because the pilot, he, she, or it, as the case may be, had told the other pilots that she was contemplating a suicide and her sex change was an attempt to solve her mental problem. So the other pilots naturally didn't want her aboard or uh, flying the planes and Eastern agreed. However, uh, the interesting fact is that the uh, FAA has recertified this pilot and the psychiatrists have said they'd be delighted to fly with her. Her lawyer says she's as fit to fly as ever and the pilot herself says it's a clear case of sex discrimination. And amazingly, the author of this newspaper story is in favor of this he-she-it pilot. So much for Big Brother looking after us carefully and the press representing a good, sound perspective. Well, now to go to some other matters. First of all, I'd like to uh, deal briefly with a book. Gordon Rattray Taylor is the author. The Great Evolution Mystery, published by Harper and Rowe Publishers, and uh, published just this year, 1983. Now, the whole point of this book is that uh, the author, who refuses for a moment to consider creationism seriously, admits that Darwinianism is in serious trouble. He admits that the doctrine of evolution is crumbling under attack. And... He simply refuses to go back to a position that says that the world was determined by a divine plan. Darwinism, he says, substituted chance for purpose. But he says that concept is now beginning to fall apart. In fact, he uh, refers to a conference of... Uh, scientists at which time the mathematicians attacked the whole concept as mathematically impossible. So he says the situation is one of considerable concern 
Now, he will not consider a return to creationism. He says plainly, the fact of evolution is not in question. We don't know, he says, and I should add, he died just recently after completing this book, that there is no uh, evidence in favor of evolution, but it has to be true. Therefore, the only question is, how is it true? Well, the simple fact is that uh, there is no way that things could have happened, he admits, by chance, by natural selection, or by variations of chance. Because uh, he says, and I quote, while it is not difficult to believe that some small structural change such as a change in the shape of a bird's bill occurs by chance. It is very difficult to believe that a complex structure like the eye, which involves many coordinated changes, came about by chance, and especially as it did so several times. Darwin himself was flummoxed by this. When I think of the eye, I shudder, he said, unquote. Now, Taylor goes back to the eye subsequently and admits that if there were any changes in the development of the eye, there would be blindness, that the idea that through centuries the eye gradually changed and adapted itself is ridiculous because those chance variations would have meant blindness for untold millennia. Moreover, he goes on to give numerous examples of the same kind of thing, instances whereby chance variations would have led to extinction. So he has a long section, pages 137 following uh, and elsewhere, summing up the inadequacy of natural selection. And he speaks of the pontifical assurance of the orthodox evolutionists. He also refers to the fact that Darwin never dealt with the origin of species, although that was what his book was supposedly about. So we have the question of the unsolved origin of species. He says that the greatest weakness of uh, Darwinism is that it cannot be disproved, <laughs> which is a left-handed way of saying it can't be proved either. It's beyond proof. However, what he says must have made evolution possible was the fact of design. Now, the gist of it is that he wants to reintroduce God without God. Everything that God possesses is somehow going to be an attribute of nature without the person of God. So there has to be design, he insists, in the natural world, a perfect design implicitly, and that design is responsible for these perfect changes 
which did not result in blindness for millennia, but created, as it were, the variations that have led up the so-called evolutionary ladder. For those of you who are interested in uh, the absurdities of modern scientific hypotheses, this is an excellent book. Let me add that this and other books you can get from the Heritage Bookshop 2427-B, B as in boy, Marconi, M-A-R-C-O-N-I Avenue, Sacramento, California, 95821. And the telephone is 916-487-8944. Those of you who have any interest in the subject of science will find this to be a thoroughly uh, worthwhile book. Another which is very, very interesting and important is by Dr. Thomas Verney, V as in Victor, E-R-N-Y, M-D, with John Kelly, published by Summit Books in New York, and the title is The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. It was published in 1981, and it is still available. Now, what this study does is to call attention to the very amazing discoveries concerning the unborn child. Let me just read a few passages. I quote, We now know that the unborn child is an aware, reacting human being who from the sixth month on, and perhaps even earlier, leads an active emotional life. Along with this startling finding, we have made these discoveries. The fetus can see, hear, experience, taste, and on a primitive level even learn in utero, that is, in the uterus before birth. More importantly, he can feel not with an adult sophistication, but feel nonetheless. A corollary to this discovery is that when a child feels and perceives, what a child feels and perceives, begins shaping his attitudes and expectations about himself. Whether he ultimately sees himself and hence acts as a happy or sad, aggressive or meek, secure or anxiety-ridden person depends in part on the message he gets about himself in the womb. The chief source of these shaping messages is the child's mother. This does not mean every fleeting worry, doubt, or anxiety a woman has rebounds on her child. What matters are deep, persistent patterns of feeling. Chronic anxiety or retching ambivalence about motherhood can leave a deep scar on an unborn child's personality. On the other hand, such life-enhancing emotions as joy, elation, and anticipation can contribute significantly to the emotional development of a healthy child. New research is also showing, uh, beginning to focus much more on the father's feelings. Until recently, his emotions were disregarded. Our latest studies indicate that this view is dangerously wrong. They show that how a man feels about his wife and unborn child is one of the single most important factors in determining the success of a pregnancy. Now, he goes on to deal with the habits of the mother, unhappy mothers, and so on. 
famine babies, and the like. In fact, he says there are some researchers here who believe that there is a real consciousness and awareness in the child beginning from the moment of conception. Uh, let me state this uh, in his own words. I quote, One group of investigators believes something like consciousness exists from the very first moments of conception, unquote. He says this is not fully proven yet, but a great deal of evidence that is beginning to point in that direction. He really does uh, develop some very remarkable uh, bits of uh, evidence towards that end. They uh, have also demonstrated that uh, infants who are loved and petted and stroked score higher on IQ tests than children who have not been touched. Well, there's a great deal more in this book. Oh, oh by the way, this is important. The uh, babies. Uh, before their birth, have a taste in music. And they do not like rock music. They have a preference for classical music. There's something about the rhythm and all that is most appealing to them. Now, the ironic fact is that this... Uh, author, the doctor is still for abortion. But this book has some of the most dramatic evidence against abortion you could hope to find. It is a very important book. Well, on to another, which uh, I think will be of interest especially to doctors, by Dr. Richard Gordon, an English physician who has written a book entitled Great Medical Disasters. It was published in this country by, uh, let me see, <laughs> Stein and Day in New York. The uh, book is written in a tongue-in-cheek manner, and he begins with a lot of quotations about medical practice, going back to the poet Francis Quarles of the uh, 1600s. Physicians of all men are most happy. What good success soever they have, the world proclaimeth, and what faults they commit, the earth covereth. And then from Ecclesiasticus by Ben Syrick, He that sinneth before his Maker, let him fall under the hand of the physician. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he does have quite a story here of medical disasters. In fact, uh, he has a couple of pages on medical or surgical souvenirs. And... Uh, it's a list of operative oversights reported to a doctor's legal insurance company in London for a period of 18 years, from 1962 on. And uh, the number of 
swabs left inside is fantastic. And then all articles, instruments, needles, etc. Amazing how many. Uh, in 1979, for example, the figure for instruments and needles left inside was 110. Uh, however, he says, more gruesomely, a large forceps used for holding swabs, acting like scissors with locking handles, measuring nine and a half inches by three, was discovered in the ashes of a woman aged 76 a week after an operation on her kidney. The operation wound its, uh, wound itself was much smaller, only five inches long and three and a half inches deep. It could never have concealed the forceps. No instruments were missing in the operating theaters or the sterile supply store. No one ever knew how it accompanied her to the furnace. Well, there's a lot of um, <laughs> earthy medical humor in this book. But all in all, what Dr. Gordon has done is this. He's poked fun at his own profession. He's called attention to their most horrible mistakes. But in the process, he's also given us uh, a vivid picture of the progress. A good many of the disasters he describes are with diseases and conditions that are no longer with us. By the way, if you want to read about someone who suffered at the hands of doctors, read about Charles II of England, who died in the late 1600s, and uh, it's a miracle he didn't die sooner, given the treatment he received from the doctors. He apologized, by the way, for taking so long to die. Well, you'll enjoy that book if you're a doctor, and probably if you're not. Now to another that I'll just touch on briefly, because it would be difficult to do it justice. It would take an hour, really, to go into this book. But if you enjoy history, this is a delight. It is, I think, a very fair and honest historical study of one of the most dramatic figures in history. It is by Dr. Amy Kelly, the title Eleanor of Aquitaine and the Four Kings. It was published by Harvard University Press in 1950 and was reprinted in 1981. It is still available. Eleanor of Aquitaine was a very remarkable woman, herself a ruler of one of the richest areas of Europe. She married a king, Louis VII of France, and went with him on the Second Crusade in the Holy Land. She was subsequently divorced from Louis and married Henry Plantagenet, who became Henry II of England. She was somewhat older. She had two daughters by Louis, and she had four sons by Henry, and I believe some daughters. At any rate, she was the wife of 
two kings and also the mother of two kings, Richard the Lionhearted and John. And it's quite a dramatic story. Henry II was one of the most important kings of England who, out of the anarchy in the days of Stephen, brought order to England. He was uh, the man who was responsible for the death of Thomas of Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was a hot-tempered, arrogant man, but also a man of remarkable uh, capabilities. He, uh, his temper was violent. He was literally one of these men who, in anger, would roll on the carpet and chew it. Uh, he was capable of very remarkable blasphemy. Uh, on one occasion, he is quoted as having said, The city I have loved best on earth, the city where I was born and bred, where my father lies buried, where is the body of St. Julian, this, O God, to the increase of my shame, thou hast reft of me. I will requite as best I can. I will assuredly rob thee of the thing thou prizest most in me, my soul. That was Henry. Well, this book is quite uh, dramatic reading. And uh, it's good history if you enjoy medieval history in particular. And... Uh, it covers quite an area of uh, time, the Crusades, the history of France at the time, and the history of England and Aquitaine. Now to another book, again very briefly. This is, I believe, no longer in print. It was published by the University of Oklahoma Press, Joshua Pilcher, fur trader, and Indian agent. Now, I cite this because Pilcher was not only a fur trader and an Indian agent, but a good observer on the frontier. And uh, the book is uh, not exciting, but there are some interesting points I want to pass on. First of all, game was scarce on the frontier. Fur traders, and this is something very few people appreciate, could not live off the land. The Indians had trouble living off the land. This is why, before the coming of the white man, especially, it was routine for famine to hit the Indian tribes in the winter because of the lack of food. Also, before they got the gun from the white man and the horse, hunting was that much harder. Moreover, because, as I mentioned oh, about a year ago, you had the vast forests covering the east, game was scarce. There was too little open ground for game to flourish. On the western plains, it was difficult to get. It was hard to creep up on the game, such as the buffalo, and deadly as well. So game was scarce, and the fur traders could not make it 
without a considerable grub stake. Moreover, there was a great uh, deal of effort by the federal government to protect the Indians in the fur trade as well as the Indians. But you had all kinds of people on the frontier. The lawless tended to move westward so that you not only had the lawless, but you had legitimate businessmen all competing on the frontier. Uh, by the way, uh, Pilcher was a mason, although not as active once he became involved in the fur trade. And the number of masons on the frontier in business areas was um, more than a slight one. Well, now to go on to a very important book. A book that is really a landmark in its field. It is by Nikolai Tolstoy, Stalin's Secret War, published by Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston in 1981, and still available, last I heard. It is a work of very great importance because Stalin's secret war was the war against his own people, the people of the Soviet Empire. Everything that Stalin did has ad, ad, had as its paramount objective to keep the people in line. He knew precisely what he was doing. It was a power play, and the primary victims were the peoples of the Soviet Union. No one could hate the Soviet rulers more than they. And so, whatever other enemy Stalin had, his primary enemy was the Russian people. And as a result, everything was done to paralyze them. They were enslaved, they were tortured, they were massacred whole scale. The Soviet state boasted of itself as the embodiment of humanism. And they used, let me say, the word humanism. I heard recently for the umpteenth time a scholar who claims to be Christian objecting to the use of humanism and as a term describing our current evils. He wanted to reserve the term for Renaissance scholars. The purpose of the cruelty of the murders was to prevent a popular uprising, to disarm the people. Moreover, when the war with Germany began, large numbers of people defected to the German side. Troops, civilians, in great numbers. As a result, what Stalin ordered his uh, men to do was to take Germans, to torture them, to treat them as brutally as possible, 
and to leave them, and their, that is, their bodies, where the Germans would find them. He did all he could to provoke the Germans to retaliation, and it worked. So the Germans began to kill in a rage, and that, of course, created the resistance that Stalin wanted. The people now began, instead of defecting to the Germans, to fight them with a passion. The result was that a tremendous resistance to Germany developed. In the process, Tolstoy points out the contemptible concealment of the truth about the Soviet Union by Westerners. And he does not hesitate to name the homosexual groups that were prominent in this. Moreover, he gives a grim account in passing of the fact that when Stalin demanded at the end of the war, not only that those who had been defectors from the troops and refugees into German lines, but also people who had left the Soviet Union at the time of the revolution be handed over to him. We did so, and they were brutally massacred. We knew what we were doing. Our troops cursed these men, women, and children as they screamed. They rammed them into cattle cars with bayonets and gun butts. We were a party to the massacre. What Hitler did, we equaled, and we had better not forget that. And our troops were ready to do it. Not one American soldier, to my knowledge, ever rebelled against doing it. So don't ever dream that what happened in Germany or the Soviet Union could not happen here. Exactly what we condemned men for at Nuremberg, our men did here. They obeyed orders. Well, it's a horrifying account. As a matter of fact, the amazing thing is that anyone of any classification was sentenced to death. If you were an aristocrat or a priest or an official of the Red Cross, if you spoke Esperanto, if you were a stamp collector, the NKVD, the predecessor to the KGB, would round you up for slave labor camps or execution. This is a very important and a telling book. Another book related to this is by James Lucas, War on the Eastern Front, 1941-45, to The German Soldier in Russia. This was published in 1979, uh, I believe, in England, and then in 82 by Bonanza Books, distributed by Crown Publishers by arrangement with Stein and Day,
This is an account of the military operations of the German army in Russia. The point it makes, of course, is essentially a military uh, account, but it, at key points, confirms Tolstoy's account. What it tells us is that the, Russian, the Germans on entering Russia were horrified by the primitiveness of things. It was as though a thousand years or more of civilization had disappeared and they were back in an earlier, more primitive era. Most of the peasants lived in huts with dirt floors and without any lighting whatsoever. Party officials in the villages lived in slightly better accommodations with a paraffin lamp. They found that all the maps they had were worthless. They encountered very quickly in their invasion a vast area of swamp, of jungles, which in the summer were scorching hot and in the winter cold beyond their imagination. It's a very grim account. And it deals with the whole thing very realistically. It also points out the fact that the German army, when the war broke out, contrary to common assumptions, was unmechanized. It had no anti-tank weapons. It relied heavily on horses. As a result, it was a very difficult war on a very difficult terrain. Let me quote one passage from a German account of the time. We do not usually go very far into the forests. You can have no idea of what they are like. The trees are mostly deciduous, and centuries of fallen leaves lie rotting on the forest floor. The stink is indescribable, but out of this rich soil spring weeds and bushes to form a barrier through which nothing but the smallest woodland creature can go. If we do have to move further into the woods, then we look for the spoor of larger beasts and follow these trails. But often they pass into low tunnels made in the bushes and are not to be negotiated by a soldier in battle kit. The flies and mosquitoes are a plague, and I wonder what these blood-sucking pests lived on before we came along. We wear nets over our helmets, but the beasts work their way up the sleeves and inside the collar. The halt is to be covered in a mass of these terrible, biting insects and the inevitable flies. We are in a swamp, but there is little water fit to drink. It is all brackish. Even water taken from wells tastes unpleasant and we have to boil every drop that we drink. Well, it's a very important, a very telling book. Now, on to another, very briefly, Stephen Aarons, A-R-O-N-S, the title, Compelling Belief, The Culture of American Schooling, published 
this year, 1983, by McGraw-Hill Book Company. Now, this is a libertarian book, but uh, it is a critique of the public schools and their essential weakness. The author does not go into the question of religious freedom, and there is a great deal here that is omitted. But all the same, there is a uh, good critique within the limits of his perspective of the uh, public schools and their control. Uh, this is what he says. What all of these elements of the liberal ideology of schooling amount to is an attempt to define what David Tyack has called in his book by the same name, The One Best System. These educators share a general distrust of parents and a view that it is possible, desirable, and even essential to prescribe a system of values that is best for everyone. The assumption is that each child must adhere, adhere to the minimum in child rearing in order to qualify for the right to dissent in other areas. The culture, the political system, and the state have the right to preserve themselves through government schooling. Those families that insist that home education is a part of the fundamental right of citizens to dissent in belief and belief formation are in the minority and in the environment of school ideology constitute an endangered species. So he presents arguments for the separation of school and state with which we can very definitely agree. Then another book which is no longer available perhaps, but I don't know for sure, was published in 1980 by McGraw-Hill also by Marion Sandmayer. S-A-N-D-M-A-I-E-R, The Invisible Alcoholics, Women and Alcohol Abuse in America. It's not a book that I recommend. I'm just citing it because, of course, it overlooks the key fact that the only real solution to the problem of alcoholism has been religious faith. The author admits that they do not know what causes alcoholism. They do not know uh, why uh, people quit drinking. And certainly their answers do not lead uh, to such drinking. The author makes no attempt to correlate these uh, feminine women with uh, the devout, the Christian women in our society. And there is an obvious link. Ironically, uh, and most revealing, the author has a chapter on lesbians and admits the statistics, in her own words, are mind-boggling. In 1970, and I'm quoting psychiatrist Marcel T. Sager, compared the psychological adjustment of lesbians with both female heterosexuals and male homosexuals. The subjects were primarily white, middle class, and under 35. 
uh, Sager discovered that an astonishing 35% of lesbians had had problems with alcohol at some point in their lives, compared to 28% of the homosexual men and only 5% of the heterosexual women. The study also found that lesbians were significantly more likely than the other two groups to use non-prescription drugs and have attempted suicide. Uh, she goes on to cite uh, much more data on the prevalence of these problems and other problems among lesbians and homosexuals, and then excuses it on the ground that this is their reaction to society's uh, discomfort and disapproval of them, a radical environmentalism on her part. So, uh, it's not their fault they are drinkers. It's the fault of the rest of us. Now I'd like to call attention to a book that uh, is a reprint of an old autobiography. Not a biography by a Southern Presbyterian pastor, William S. White and His Times. And it was edited by his son, the Reverend H.M. White. It has been reprinted. It was first printed more than a century ago, I believe, by Sprinkle Publications in Harrisonburg, Virginia. 22801 is the zip, and it's P.O. Box 1094. It is published cloth-bound for nine ninety-five, but if you write and say that you learned of it through Chalcedon, you can get it for six fifty. The Life and Times of W. S. White. It is an interesting book, but it is also very important in terms of some things I discussed a while back, namely the matter of secession. And this man, White, a pastor at the time in Virginia, a southerner to the core, wrote, Virginia had not withdrawn from the Union, and an immense majority of her people were strongly opposed to this measure as the wisest and best means of seeking redress for the wrongs the whole South suffered at the hands of the North. With this feeling I sympathized with all my heart. I deprecated what then seemed to me like burning the barn to kill the rats. However, subsequently, he says, he became a rebel, never a secessionist, and infers that many in Virginia shared his position because of what he regarded as the unconstitutional actions of Lincoln. Moreover, he goes on to condemn secession. He speaks of our run-mad secessionists. Uh, he says that while he suffered some personal rudeness, by and large there were enough who stood with him that he was able to go through the war without any problems. But this is important. 
He says, a sort of madness seemed to seize upon this people some 30 years ago. First, in regard to African slavery, and second, in regard to the unlimited extent and populousness of the country. As to the first, the abolitionists contended that African slavery was in itself an unmitigated evil, or as they were fond of expressing it, the sum of all abominations, and should be repented of and abolished at once, regardless of all consequences, both to the master and his slaves. On the other hand, the secessionists contended not only that this relation was sanctioned by the word of God, but that it was in itself a great social, political, and moral good, and as such ought to be perpetuated through all time and disseminated through all space. Massachusetts was the mother of the former, and South Carolina the mother of the latter heresy, unquote. Now, he also has a considerable amount to say on the matter of abolition, and he says, the sentiment of abolition did not originate in the North, as the ill-informed suppose, but in the South. And he goes on to say that the South led the way in seeking abolition, but they wanted to find a means of gradual abolition that would take care of the uh, freed men as well as uh, alleviating any social crisis. And so, he says, the problem was, however, that the Northerners then began to demand instant abolition. He also speaks of the uh, problems that occurred as a result of the Northern position. Well, it's a very important work historically and well worth reading. I do uh, recommend it to you. By the way, he says of the Northern perspective that it showed a uh, less concern for the slaves and more hatred of the northerners. He said, in truth, they have no special fondness for the Negro. One of the most distinguished men in the state of Ohio said to a friend of mine, only consent to wipe the blot of African slavery from our national escutcheon and we shall have peace. My friend replied, I have no objection to the emancipation of this people. But tell me how we can better their condition. What shall we do with them? Do with them, replied the kind-hearted philanthropist. Do with them. Why, hang them, shoot them, drown them. I say, I care nothing for them. Only wipe out this blot, unquote. Well, so much for that. I have some other items, but just this little thing, which Eric Storer sent to me an ad with regard to investments, which concludes with this. More and more people nowadays are willing to at least talk about speculation as a salvation from taxes and inflation, and some people are doing something about it. Those who wish to argue the point must come up with a better solution. Can you? Unquote. 
Well, we certainly can. The fact is that their solution is one which neglects the faith and only offers us disaster. Because our problem is a creation of an abandonment of the priority of our faith, the priority of Christianity. And the more we seek salvation in other solutions, the more deadly it becomes. Moreover, the beginning of a change is in our own lives. We cannot demand a change in Washington if we will not conform ourselves, first of all, to the Word of God. If we forsake a complete dependence upon God and an unswerving obedience to his word. It amazes me how people demand honesty and integrity in Washington who lack it in themselves, who are hypocritical, who are everything they accuse the politicians of being. Why should the politician be any better than the people? In fact, I've often said if the politicians were as bad as the average man, we'd be in very serious trouble. The fact is we tend to get politicians who are a little better than we deserve. They do represent, on the whole, a better element than the country at large represents. So we should not be surprised at what is going on. We're getting the kind of politics that represents the life of the people. So we had better change our lives. Then we can begin to change the country. The major problem we have today is that we're not willing to face up to the basic issue anywhere, whether it is the matter of the Soviet Union or inflation. People want an evasive answer. They really want more inflation, which will benefit them while not hurting their pocketbook. They want the impossible. While I was driving the other day, I heard that a poll after the 007 shooting indicated that a higher percentage of the American people than ever before distrusted the Soviet Union. At the same time, more than ever before were against nuclear weapons and more than ever before believe that nuclear weapons are going to be used in the next war. In other words, they are incapable of thinking logically. They believe that there is going to be war and that the Soviet Union is evil, it's going to attack us, and yet they are against armament. Somehow, things will disappear if they refuse to admit their reality. So, what can you expect under those circumstances? The people have to change. We have to conduct, first of all, a revitalization of the Christian church. It has to be Christian, which by and large it is not today. Only then can we expect our society to manifest 
some kind of integrity. Well, our time is virtually over. It's been good to be with you again. Next time we will almost certainly have a very important guest. And until then, thank you for listening and God bless you.